Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today is Friday, and uh, my co-host, Benham, is unfortunately traveling. Well, fortunately for him, but unfortunately for me. But also fortunately for me, we have a guest today, and that guest is David Daoud, my friend and colleague at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. David is a senior fellow at FDD, and he focuses on Lebanon and Hezbollah, and he's just the go-to on this issue and and anything related to Iran. Uh, David, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be on with you again. Yeah, no, it's it's a pleasure. We got a lot to talk about today. Um, a lot to going on with Hezbollah. A lot going on in northern um, in northern Israel, southern uh, Lebanon. Let's just jump right into it, um, David. So there's been, you know, we keep waiting for this this war, this full on full blown war to kick off between Israel and Hezbollah. Um, what is the status of the fighting uh, right now in uh, in northern Israel, southern Lebanon? And um, are we seeing an increase attacks? Are we is this is this still the same old drumbeat that we've experienced since the beginning? Um, look, I, I mean, one thing I've been emphasizing since October eighth, particularly since January fifth, just to quote Nasrallah, sometimes you need to take him at face value. Uh, is this is a war? Right? He said this. He said this. We were full part of this battle. This is a war. Now, as you know, wars can take on different forms. They can be high intensity, low intensity, but. Where you have a situation where you have constant daily, multiple times a day attacks from one side and retaliations from the other side, right? What else would you describe that as? It can't classify it as mere frontier incidents or border clashes. Um, So this is a war. Uh, Where it intensifies remains to be seen. Now, it has kind of adopted a certain tempo. And I think we can get into the reasons why Hezbollah remains kind of within that tempo and the Israelis also have not gone beyond that. Um, but what we have seen is that at different points where one side or the other may cross a red line, you'll see punctuations, let's call them minor escalation. Now within those minor, relatively minor escalations compared to the, you know, the standard tempo within those escalations, you can risk creating a bigger escalation unintended or otherwise, uh, you know, you unintentionally kill a civilian, uh, grandmother or sorry yeah and her and her and her son right there's a price that has to be paid for that um you assassinate a hamas official who's just kind of hanging out in a, a shawarma cafe in beirut uh right there has there's a price that has to be paid for that if the price that's to be paid for that includes a high-ranking idf general again the response is going to be higher than it would be if you're just hitting a open land or something so there is always the room for for unintended escalation. Um, where this is going to go, I think remains to be seen. I think there are, again we can discuss the moving parts that are keeping it in place, um, and that'll give us kind of an indication of where this could go moving forward. Earlier this week on Wednesday, the IDF said it struck a series of uh, uh, quote terror targets in Lebanon, including a military asset used by the Hezbollah terrorist organization and operated by Iranian forces, end quote. Do we have any more details? Joe and I, Joe Trusman and I, we discussed this Wednesday, but that was coming out just as we were doing the, the podcast. Do we have any more details on what was hit here? We absolutely do. So um, the IDF said that they had uh, struck uh, an airstrip used by Hezbollah to launch, obviously not planes, but more likely attack drones or loitering munitions. Um, this is actually something that wasn't just recently discovered. Uh, Defense Minister Yoav Galan had talked about this at Reichman University uh, in on September 11th of 2023. Uh, he gave a detailed briefing at the time about uh, you know, there were pictures with numbers uh, about the nature of this airstrip and who was running it. Um, so this is what was struck. It's it's in an area called Birka Jabur, which is near Jazin in South Lebanon. It's not exactly on the border. It's a little bit more of an you know, it, it, if you uh, if you're familiar with the um, the security zone that existed in South Lebanon uh, prior to 2000, so there were two withdrawals. There was the first withdrawal from Jazin, I think, in 1999, and then the final withdrawal. 
the Jazine Enclave kind of went really deep into, you know, the, the I guess the eastern sector of, of, of the security zone. That's where this is located, kind of the tip of that. Um, so we know it's an airstrip that's used by Hezbollah. This is something that's been known to the Israelis. And uh, within the past couple of days, so um, I think it was it was actually the same day, the Hezbollah had announced that they had targeted um, an uh, Iron Dome battery in Fakhbloum. Uh, with loitering munitions, and they're making a big deal out of this. And again, the Israelis haven't like revealed any damage. Hezbollah is obviously going to exaggerate the impact of this, but presumably these loitering munitions were launched from this airstrip, um, and this is why the Israelis targeted it to kind of at least not put it permanently out of commission, at least you know dent dent its operations. Were there any indications that any Hezbollah or IRGC, obviously Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officers were killed in this attack? No, it doesn't seem like there have been many. I mean, Hezbollah will put out the numbers of their casualties daily. Uh, so far, I've been checking in the past couple of days. They haven't updated anything. Uh, clarify, I didn't check it this morning yet, but uh, the past couple of days, it's been it's been static. Uh, in terms of IRGC, uh, no, not not in this attack. That doesn't mean they weren't present. Um, again, this kind of this relates to wanting to keep both sides, right? Wanting to keep this this low intensity war within a certain within certain confines. Um, you can target an asset and not kill people, right? If if you can get if you can get away with that, and I think the preference here is to like just damage and not provoke even further. Uh, and we could talk about the wisdom of that policy, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think you know where I fall on that. Yeah, you really want sure. that to stop. Oh, and by the way, the IRGC, they also have been very clear when their commanders or yeah. operatives yeah. have been killed. So they've released statements as well. Just how pervasive is the IRGC presence inside Lebanon, uh, particularly in the south? Do, do we have an idea of how many advisors and, and IRGC commanders are actually operating inside Lebanon? Look, it's hard to tell, and I don't think it's a static number. I think it's going to fluctuate uh, given circumstances. I would imagine in a situation, and look, it's not like exactly we can ask these, you know, we can ask Hezbollah and get an honest answer. Uh, there has been a, a narrative that may be kind of this retroactive, anachronistic narrative to build up the cult of Soleimani's personality. But there is this narrative that's been built up that during the 2006 war, he was there throughout. Right. And again, is this fact or is this the cult of personality of Soleimani that they've tried to build up since he was killed? Um, I would imagine, though, that, you know, there are low level commanders, low level advisors there on the ground. The number is going to fluctuate. But look, at the end of the day, Hezbollah is the IRGC. That's something we need to, yes. we need to remember. So if we really want to talk about the actual numbers of the IRGC. I think every Hezbollah fighter, commander, official is is you know they may be lebanese they have lebanese citizenship but they serve iran's interests they are ultimately loyal to iran even if they take lebanon's domestic constraints into consideration and those are effectively irgc officers that's a that's an excellent point that i also make with respect to some of these iraqi and syrian militias um as well maybe a little less so for the houthis but I'm, i might be coming around to that anymore but yeah some of these like i remember the designation of um abu Mahdi al-mahandas and he was a the head of the popular mobilization forces in iraq he was a founder of hezbollah brigades inside of iraq and his designation in i want to say it was 2007 but it may have been nine um described him as an advisor to Qasem Soleimani. I mean, if He's an advisor to Soleimani. I always argued this with people. Like, what did that make him? Did that not make him a member of the IRGC? And what about his lieutenants? And and I think this that's a really excellent point that you make, David, that at this point in time, groups like Hezbollah or Hezbollah Brigades or Asiba Haq or Harakat Hezbollah Nijabo, these are all Iraqi militias I'm mentioning here. You know, they're carrying out the will of Iran and Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And, you know, at what point do we have to consider them to be part of the organization? Sure. You know, and, and, and I think Iran is crafty enough to take in, take those local considerations, the issues that Hezbollah has to deal with in, in, in Lebanon, that, that, that um, Hezbollah brigades or Asib al-Haq have to deal with in Iraq. And that's all part of 
the machine. That's part and, of the strategy. Yeah. yeah. That's, part, yeah that's part of the strategy. I mean, you don't want to undermine your proxy in the geography or the geographical territory where they exist, right? If your goal is growth, and this is where we this is where we kind of get confused, I think. The goal of the the Islamic Republic isn't necessarily to destroy Israel, right? It isn't necessary. That is a goal, but it's not the top priority, right? There, it's, the, it's it not is the immediate the goal. It's yeah. Not, yeah, it's not the ultimate goal, right? It's it's that is a goal along the path. Um, again, destroying yeah, America, they, they, Iran wouldn't stop what it's doing. No, it if wouldn't. Israel yeah. collapse exactly, today. exactly. Right. So the goal we have to understand is growth. It is to export this revolution. It is to build uh, statelets. Slowly but surely, uh, to the exportation of this revolution that mirror and operate a lot like the Islamic Republic. So, if your goal is growth, you don't undermine the growth, right? You don't, you don't, you know, you don't uh, score a tactical win and 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 you know, accrue a strategic failure or a strategic loss. So, if you're looking at Hezbollah, you have to take Lebanon into consideration, not because you care about Lebanon. Not because you care about Lebanon's interests, but because you care about Hezbollah's interests in, in growth in Lebanon, because that's an extension of your growth. Um, and that that's, I mean, that's the, that's the I don't know, the, the genius of the model. I'm going to get like flack for calling them geniuses, but no, they're very, look, they're a smart adversary. They know how to operate. And if you don't want the roof to collapse in on your proxy's head, you have to care for the roof. No, it's absolutely correct, David. And, and as I say all the time, and I know you know this, we shouldn't apologize for giving credit where credit is due. I mean, you know, I, they have a smart strategy and they have the will to execute it. And we have to respect that. And we, we lost in Afghanistan because we didn't respect the Taliban. We thought they were a bunch of a third rate militia that would, that was tired and was moderate and all these other things, these ideas that we, we impressed upon them. But wasn't really true, and, and unless you respect your enemy, you you there's no way you could address it and meaningfully try to defeat it. So, yeah, and you know the it's it's a lot like the communist strategy, right, of the Soviet Union, right? They they spread their revolution, they spread their communist doctrine to through multiple countries. I think the um, I don't think the communists were actually though as clever as Iran. I think Iran is far more willing to work through its proxies and understand their difficulties where, you know, I don't want to get into a whole discussion on this, where I think the Russians or the, the, the Soviets were far more willing to sacrifice pieces on the chessboard. Um, so it, it, which ultimately makes them far more dangerous. And, and it is, there's genius to their strat strategy and we have to recognize that. And they also have something that I think the Soviets didn't necessarily have was an organic base. And that's where, the, that's where the strategy starts. You have a Shia base that is disenfranchised for whatever reason. You start there. And that's where you start pulling them into the ideology. And once, once you have a base, right? A terror group without a base is a criminal organization. It's finite, right? Once you have a base, you have renewable numbers, right? Then, then, you're, then you're a legitimate part of the local conversation, right? This is how Hezbollah can say we are a, a critical social and political component of Lebanon. This is how they can have influence in Lebanon that is not, you know, achieved through fiat or coup or force. They have force just in case, right, as a backup measure, but they sit at the table and they argue like everyone else. And when you come with, you know, what was it, 250,000 votes in the last parliamentary elections, uh, can't be ignored. And not, no, that's, that's the genius of what Hezbollah isn't, you know, we just can't, I think we have to stop thinking about these group, groups like Hezbollah as just a terrorist organization. It's far beyond that. Um, these They have political components that can wield significant influence. The same We're seeing the same with the Iraqi militias. Obviously, Syria, a little different because they're, I don't think they're, I would say there isn't politics in Syria. It's literally just a war zone with warlords in different areas. Um the Houthis, look at what the Houthis have as far as they're, you know, again, we just can't look at them. I mean, there's meaning the Houthis were relisted as a terrorist organization. I get it. Fine. Um, it's There's value in that to a certain degree, but they're far more than that. They possess a military. They they run a country. and They have social have arms. They have government, quasi-governmental arms, shadow governmental arms. And I think it's more appropriate to look at them the way we look at Iran, which is state, 
um, that isn't a terrorist organization necessarily, but does either commit or sponsor acts of terror in furtherance of its overall strategy, which is growth. That's one of the tools in the toolkit, right? It's like saying we're, we're a sanctions organization is the United States, right? Because we use sanction, we overuse sanctions, but no, that's a tool in the toolkit, right? And terrorism is one of the tools they use in the toolkit. Um, and if we don't look at them holistically, I don't think we're going to understand either a, what they are, how they're going to, how they're, how they're growing or how to be, how to, how to fight them. Um, so I think starting, you know, coming to that conclusion that maybe, you know, maybe Hezbollah isn't a state yet, but it's a state in the making, you know, if actually, ironically, it reminds me of the issue, right? The proto state that the, you know, the, the Zionists had built in, in Israel using the British mandate as scaffolding. And then, you know, you have all the institutions of statehood. Once the British mandate ends, you have a ready-made state. And this looks to me like what Hezbollah is doing in Lebanon, what the PMF, uh, not as advanced yet, but it'll probably get there in, in, in Iraq, Syria, we're still at the proto stage. Uh, but again, Hezbollah wasn't this in 1982, right? This had to, this, this, this was a slow accumulation, um, but states or states in the making, that's how we should view them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a, that's a, another great point. Um, yeah, you're right. They're not quite there, not full control of the state, but they're, you know, how do we classify them? Like, Iran, it's easy, right? We classify Iran as a, a state sponsor of terrorism, right? Same thing with North Korea. It makes sense, right? You know, Hezbollah is in this gray zone in between a, a, a foreign terrorist organization and a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, same thing with the Iraqi militias. I mean, you know, maybe the Houthis might be the closest thing that you can, but they don't fully control the state of, yeah. of, of Yemen, of but Yemen. they might fit. I'm way out of my league here. I got, we're, we're talking legal issues and David, you are a lawyer, so you certainly can put me in my place, but, uh, certainly, certainly interesting conversation. Certainly something that, that, you know, as we have these discussions, it gets my, gets my brain going, gets that hamster in the wheel in my head going um and but you know it, it is it we i feel like we're trying to you know stick the the square peg in a round hole by looking at hezbollah as a as a, a just as a terrorist organization and then you see confusion right where some countries say well we're not going to designate hezbollah's um political arm just their military arm and you come up with this real strange dissembling on what hezbollah is and how we should treat it um, there has to be something in between, but uh, far greater minds than mine will probably figure that one out one day, or probably not. I have a feeling we'll just keep going down this path. And if we do, if we don't figure it out, it's going to be to our disadvantage. Um, I mean, case in point, the political versus military wing distinction, I don't know how that can be sustained uh, when Hezbollah itself mocks it as a fiction. Right. And, you know, this is in furtherance of a policy, uh, primarily, if we're going to pick on the French. Um, right. This, Why not? This is, this is, you know, this is, this is a French led policy that the goal of which is to kind of maintain Lebanon's stability, but Lebanon's stability and Hezbollah don't really, you know, and, and, and Hezbollah's growth don't really go hand in hand. Um, you will, you will have to destabilize Lebanon to get rid of Hezbollah, but that'll be kind of a, kind of the surgery phase. Right. Uh, but to sit there and deal with Hezbollah as a legitimate actor, as you would any other actor in Lebanon, as problematic as those actors may be, Hezbollah is in a unique category um, and say, well, this is in the interest of making sure Lebanon doesn't collapse, except what you're sponsoring, again, is this entity from within that is hollowing out the country slowly uh, to build, using it as scaffolding and no more to build its own statelet. So this is, this is it's, it's, it's a self-defeating policy without, you know, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, yeah. as you're trying to keep Lebanon stable, it it fall, it slides further and further into the well, hands because, of Hezbollah because you're legitimizing the, if not the source of instability, but the the barrier to stop to to reversing Lebanon's instability, and that's Hezbollah. Hezbollah getting getting rid of or weakening Hezbollah is step one to starting to fix the entire system in Lebanon that makes Lebanon such a well on the cusp of being a failed state. Uh, but I don't know, this is, you know, we've, we've, I guess, I don't know if we've veered off a little bit, but yeah, this, this like conceiving, conceiving of our, of our adversaries properly. Uh, I think we look at them through a particularly Western lens uh, that makes sense to us as Westerners when they're operating in a very different, you know, very different mindset. They're operating along very different terms. Yes, Iran sits in the United Nations. Uh, Iran 
participates in all the international organs like every other state, but its its mindset about what it is is fundamentally different than, say, what Germany's is and what its role in the international system is. Um, Germany views, I'm picking a random Western country, Germany views these institutions as um, pillars of global stability, right? It wants to strengthen the pillars for the sake of the pillars, whereas a country like Iran wants to use the pillars to strengthen itself and in the process undermine the pillars which constrain its abilities and the abilities of its partners, be it Russia or China, to operate as they want to. So we're not looking at things the same way. We, we, we're Like you said, we're dealing, kind of like what we were dealing with the Taliban in Afghanistan, we impute to these actors uh, intentions and, and, and uh, motivations that would be ours but aren't theirs. That's it's it's a recipe for disaster, and it's it's why we fail in these words. There's multiple reasons, right? And a lot of it is will. Um, I think we have a problem here in the United States where we have, you know, foreign policy isn't viewed as it was viewed decades ago, where it was consistent, essentially is consistent across administrations. Now we have four year and eight year swings in foreign policy, um. And and exactly what you had just described there, this this idea that we can define the enemies the way we want to define them, as opposed to what they actually are, how the enemies view themselves. And that that really is a recipe for for failure in the long term. No, and by the way, uh, we we are you know we're talking Hezbollah here, so we're not, we're not jumping yeah, all over the place. No, we're here. not. We're we're not. I mean, when when Hezbollah puts out a statement, it's important to distinguish between the bluster. Right, because they are, you know, they are an organization that likes to exaggerate its accomplishments. But when they tell you their intentions, right, bluster and intentions, we need to distinguish. We need to believe their intentions and stop this, you know, uh, hyper nuanced. And I use that in a very negative way. I think nuance is a great thing. But once you there's a there's a limit, right? Once you go to, so, so far that someone tells you, "Hey, I want X," and you're like, "Well, no, you don't really want X. You want one, two, three. That that does a disservice to us because they genuinely do want X, right? In this case, when Hezbollah puts out a statement, I think we need to believe their intentions, even when you know their list of accomplishments or other things may be an exaggeration. But take them at face value when they tell you this is what we want, this is how we want the world to look. David, that is, I know you're looking at Hezbollah 100% the right way. This is how I was able to succeed in understanding the Taliban and its intent. So they published Voice of Jihad in five different languages. And I would check occasionally to make sure, especially statements, the intentions, right? And look, the Taliban would exaggerate. People would dismiss Voice of Jihad because, oh, the Taliban claimed they killed 40 people in an attack and really only 10 were killed and 30 were wounded. And I'm like, well, the Taliban often don't distinguish between, but whatever, right? So they, yes, I would, I would always concede they exaggerate the effects of their operations, the outcome of the operations, but they never lied about that operation occurring. And then you had to look at their intent. And that was the key. I would cross check, you know, very important statements. And they weren't just communicating that to us. It was being communicated in Farsi, Daru, Pashtu, and Arabic and Urdu as well. Actually, six languages. Um, so. You know, these they weren't just communicating to us or trying to make a, you know, they were communicating to all other people. And you have to take that very, very seriously. As soon as you start dismissing the intent that they are communicating, particularly when they're communicating it to, because look, I don't think they're stupid either. They understand that um, information isn't as it was in 1980. You know, you issued a statement and it went out one way and that's all the people saw. Everyone has access to this information. They don't want to be seen as lying, particularly on their intent to um, to their own people. So, yeah, it's a, it's a it's the right read. And it's I don't under I really think the you know, I'm curious. What do you think the reasons for people doing this in Washington, particularly? I know it happens in Europe as well, but we're to your creatures of D.C. to some degree. Um, I try not to be as much as possible. But what do you think the reasoning is that people fall sure, for, I, I, for this? I, I look, I think part of it is in the, I, maybe it's an inherent psychological tendency to impute your perspective onto the other, right? And we do this, we do this in interpersonal relationships. I'd say that's part of it. 
Uh, I think the other part of it is there is a need in the DC policy sphere to always appear at a certain level of sophistication, whether, again, uh, that sophistication is justified by facts or not is irrelevant. It seems like we get into this game of philosophizing for the sake of philosophizing. Um, and the kind of the, the yardstick of your intelligence or your enlightenment becomes like, well, how deeply can you take something rather than sometimes, you know, the Occam's razor approach or, you know, just take something at face value and necessary. So you get into this realm where you're no longer, you know, no longer dealing with the fact you're dealing with, I don't know what, I think also part of it is paucity of knowledge. And this is an overcompensation or this is a compensation. Um, that a lot of these people, and if I may, you know, besmirch my environment here and uh, talk <laughs> ill of my colleagues, um, look, most of the people that are working on this stuff don't, if they, if they know the language, they've learned it in a few courses somewhere at a university. And even if you're fluent, under, just fluency in language is not enough because you have to understand the cultural mindset behind, behind language. You have to understand the role that ideology, religion, all of these things that we in the West no longer have as strong operating factors play in 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 the in you know in in the role of of Hezbollah's group like Hezbollah's ideology. When they tell you that uh, they believe in the Mahdi's coming and that this is going to bring about a certain type of world that they aspire to, they mean that. They mean that like I mean that I you know love my parents or that you love your children. That to them is absolutely real. And I think where we get confused is we don't believe such things in the West anymore. That doesn't operate as policy, right? Messianism, at least that kind of messianism, we can talk about our own messianism in, in, in Western society, but that kind of messianism, that kind of eschatological thinking does not set policy goals in the West. And where I think it gets more confusing is that actors like Hezbollah um, and Iran unlike actors like ISIS, proceed along the path to achieving that goal in very rational, very smart, very pragmatic ways, right? They're achieving irrational ends through absolutely rational means. And I think that throws confusion in. Um, and so I think all these things together, you get this kind of this mix of confusion that passes as analysis. I, I, I remember you know, Augustus Richard Norton uh, to speak ill of the dead, or at least to criticize the dead, um, was one of the proponents of the argument that Hezbollah had Lebanonized in the 1980s, in the 1990s, right? That, you know, in its early days in the 1980s, this was truly, uh, you know, a pro-Wilayt al-Faqih Iranian revolutionary entity. And sometime in the 1990s, a switch flipped in their head and they decided to become Lebanese nationalists. And all they wanted uh, was to liberate South Lebanon from Israeli occupation. So, you know, the, the, the way you approach such an organization is obviously different than you would from a revolutionary organization that is using the South Lebanon occupation as an excuse to grow its military strength, to grow its arsenal. So once that excuse is done, they're like, well, now you're now we're too powerful for you to defeat or for you to disarm for the Lebanese. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And that happened, that that insistence on the Hez on the Lebanonization of Hezbollah happened in spite of all the facts, happened because Hezbollah knew how to focus its attacks in a certain way. They knew how to play the, the, you know, the, 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 the war of minds very smartly, but they never at, at any point said that our war against Israel or the West ends at the blue line or ends at a delineated border. Um, and we see this, by the way, again, now. The, the most amazing thing is that now that you can't have that pretense anymore, because in the 1990s, you could say, well, Hezbollah hadn't overtly you know, invaded Syria on behalf of Iran. They hadn't trained Iraqi militias. They hadn't gone to Yemen. They hadn't done all these things that have nothing to do with liberating Lebanese territory. Um, now they have, but yet you have a policy that, that you know, 1701, the implementation of 1701 and potential border negotiations, delineations of the kind of the remaining, was it, I think six out of 12 points that are remain disputed in the, uh, the, the land border between Israel and Lebanon. The assumption behind this is that if this is delineated, and if there is a permanent border between Lebanon and Israel, then Hezbollah's raison d'etre will go away. This under this underlied uh, Ehud Barak's withdrawal from South Lebanon, and it and as he still sticks to the fact that the South Lebanon withdrawal was a good idea, 
he can he can make that argument for himself. Um, but yeah, that tell was, that to that the people was, in yeah, northern exa- Israel. Exactly. Well, tell that to Hezbollah. Tell that to Hezbollah. Which you know, the whole premise was okay. We withdraw behind the border. Hezbollah loses the excuse to attack and fight Israel. That clearly didn't happen. Within months of the withdrawal, you had kidnappings of soldiers and continued attacks. Um, that was twenty three years ago. Twenty four years ago. Now we're talking 24 years on, and that same premise still underpins the policy with which we're now trying to diffuse the situation on the northern border uh, or the southern border, depending what perspective you're looking at. Um, but that's the same. You know, we still don't want to take Hezbollah at face value when they tell everyone their base publicly, yes, yes, we want to liberate every inch of Lebanese land or what they perceive to be Lebanese land. Um, but then the fight doesn't against Israel doesn't end. We are winning by increments. We will pray in Jerusalem one day. That's the goal. That remains the goal. That's been the goal since day one. They've never lied about that. Yeah, I think I think there's an aspect. I agree with everything you said. And look, I'm going to add one thing. I don't speak uh, Pashtu, Dari, Urdu. I had the you know fortune. I was fortunate enough to have the Taliban issue their statements in English. So I don't think it's necessary, although I will say it would have been quite helpful for me to help understand. But everything else, I, I completely agree. I think I think if you're given enough resources or if the enemy is helpful enough, um, you certainly there, can. You certainly can do it without the sure. lines. I think it's most important. You have, oh, go ahead, David. Sorry. Yeah, but, but I think where, where, you, where you're going around that is that you're, you're trying to understand the mindset. That's exactly right. what I was going to say. I, I the think, mindset I think, is yeah, most important. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and when you lack both the linguistic tool and the desire or ability to understand the cultural mindset, then you're, then you're blind. Then you're analyzing it through how you would analyze, uh, you know, the considerations or the, you know, the, the motivations of political parties in the United States, right. Or actors in the United States, right. You're, you're not, you, and that's a different metric. You can't compare Joe Biden's or Donald Trump's motivations to Hassan Nasrallah's. It's not even a difference in degree, it's a difference in kind. And you can't begin to understand that until you have a desire to sit there and understand these people on their own terms. Yeah, you have to be able to red team it, these these groups. And and what would I do if I were them and I thought this way? This is how I would act. It's really... That's simple. No, you have to yeah. understand their ide- their ideology a little yeah. bit. You have to understand yeah. the region. Yeah. You have to understand, you know, the history. But you know, I don't think you need to be experts on any of that if you understand first and foremost their mindset and their motivations. Getting getting past this intellectual gap that's like when they tell you their motivations, like no one could think that. No one could possibly want yeah. that. Right. But what they, but if they do, like what if they do? Consider the possibility. Exactly. Because they're telling you and they it, it's not just they're telling you. Right, they're moving in increments towards this, right? They're, just because they're not operating in one fell swoop, just because they're not suicidal necessarily, uh, does not mean that they are not incrementally moving towards. So you, so you have the statements, and you have like kind of an arc of history, if you will, to back it up. But still, we insist on like, ah, oh, they can't possibly mean that. Who could possibly mean that? How many times have I heard from people that you know, uh, regarding Hamas, for example? Oh, they can't possibly want their children to die. Really? Well, what if they do? What if they do? What if they are that sick and that the value of the cause uh, outweighs the value attached to a child, your own child? And what if they're actually producing children's shows that promote suicide bombers and they martyrdom? Are. You know, it's that's the thing. You, you have to take what they do and match yeah. it with what they say. Yeah. And then at some point, but then people will look at that and they will still deny it. And I think part of the, another part of the problem that we're, we're getting back to, right? Why did people think in Washington or beyond think this way? Because I, I'm, I'm convinced in Washington that outcomes are and policy preferences are what people want. They don't want the facts. And you said that yeah. you stated that and yeah. they're not looking at the facts. They, they say. I want the U.S. to augment. I keep going back to Afghanistan because that's my bread and butter, right? We want to leave Afghanistan. Well, how do we leave Afghanistan? We can't be Al Qaeda can't have a significant presence. They can't have ties to the Taliban. The Taliban must be moderate. The Taliban are respect women's rights and, and girls going to school and stuff like that. And we we manufacture these. We manufacture our own version of the Taliban. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because the goal is to leave Afghanistan. Yeah. So. When you go down that path, you're going to fail. 
actually a great point. That's I think that's an excellent point. Not to cut, but like that's an excellent point because I think the implications of an accurate image of these groups, right? They're they're attendant policy uh, policies that you have to take, right? Perhaps war, perhaps you're up to leading up to war that that, that that could. So if you want to avoid that, do you then just delude yourself into into avoiding that? There's self deception. Yeah. Look, I are look. I understood. I'm getting on Afghanistan that. There was no will for the U.S. to stay there. My argument was, okay, that's fine if you want to leave. Um, I don't agree with it. I think it's a mistake. But let's not pretend what we're leaving behind is something that isn't. Um, and but that's the thing in Washington, they can't admit that they can't. That's an admission of failure. It's an admission of weakness or cowardice. But I'll be honest with you, we'd have been far better off leaving on those terms than the, what we pretended to leave behind and what we all witnessed in that summer and unfortunately we make these i see the same mistakes hamas attacks israel a, a horrific attack which would have equated to about twenty thousand americans dying um i always just say to you know people when they're um, don't understand what happened i said could you imagine if the drug cartels mexican cartels crossed the border killed twenty thousand americans raped them burned them you know kidnapped you know and kidnapped um you know say two thousand of them you know, what would your reaction be? What would our reaction be? And yet we're sitting here trying to lecture Israel to for a two-state solution. I mean, this is an absolute insanity. Right, yeah, and right now. Yeah. And and at this moment, and I think look, this this goes back to the the delusional thinking, the unwillingness to kind of understand the implications of of reality, because the implications of reality are much more troubling than these fictions that we create for ourselves. I mean. Whether whether a two state solution is desirable in the ultimate, you know, in the ultimate scale or the ultimate scheme of things, how do you do it now, right? How do you I do don't it even now? Talk you, about this yeah. before Hamas is dealt a blow, a yeah. defeat. Yeah, yeah, it's and look, we also I think where the United States maybe this impacts kind of the, the DC policy thinking set, but um, we have we are a country blessed by geography. And by by neighbors, look for all of the problems with you know the southern border and, and drug cartels, Mexico and Canada. We're bordered by two of the most you know peaceful countries uh, in history. We we have the Pacific Ocean and we have the Atlantic Ocean separating us from any potential adversary. The margin of error that we have um, as the United States, therefore, to make errors like we did in Afghanistan, to make errors like we have, you know in countries abroad, we can withdraw and Afghanistan can fall apart. And we will never even hear about it unless CNN or Fox News or whomever decides to report on it. We can ignore the problem. It is a very different situation when you're dealing with countries like Israel, where in case of Gaza, your backyard's fence is the international border. And that's not an exaggeration. It's literally the case in some places where your your backyard's fence, that is the international border, or where on the northern border, you can see the whites of the eyes of the person who's trying to kill you. Where when you withdraw, you are not withdrawing across, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. You're withdrawing 20 kilometers, maybe less, and you're still seeing your adversary. Which Israel uh, literally did in 2000. Which, which Israel literally did in 2000. And the adversary, again, Hezbollah didn't move mountains. They moved a few feet, right? But when you look at the security zone that the Israelis had in South Lebanon, this isn't, you know, it's not, it's not the, even the size of, of the West Bank. This is a tiny little strip of land. Um, that's all it was. That was the thin line between Hezbollah being right on the border and being a few feet away from, or you know, a few kilometers away from the border. And that gives a country so much less margin of error where, again, the Taliban can take over Kabul and no one has to evacuate I don't know, the suburbs of, of New York. Right. Whereas 80,000 people, up to 120,000 people I've been reading from northern Israel, maybe more if Hezbollah continues to target deeper into Israel, have evacuated. Right. You're, the, the, the entire north is shut down economically in terms of you know, life, the, the strain on the government's budget, the, the, the morale strain of having again, the most powerful military in the region unable to secure the peaceful and quiet enjoyment of life of 120,000 of its citizens out of a country of 9 million. We're not talking again, even on the scale of the United States. And that's a very different calculus. 
But when you look at the problems of these countries, again, this is this is again the perspective issue we were talking about. Not only do we look at our adversaries from our perspective, we put our allies, if we're still treating them like allies, uh, you know, as if they're in our shoes, as if they have all the luxuries of, you know, again, the, the blessings of American geography, our size of population, our global impact, our, the size of our military, the size of our economy. We are a unique historical phenomenon, the United States, and we can't compare even England to us, right? Definitely not the Israelis. Yeah, it's it's an excellent point, and people do forget, and, and it's it's what's made us complacent. It's what made us have the luxury of having some crazy ideas when it comes to what to do and with with respect yeah. to foreign policy. It's a, I, I couldn't agree more. You you segue very nicely, um, unknowingly to you uh, the, to my next question. Um, so the reports that Hezbollah or that Israel wants Hezbollah removed from the area of the southern um, Lebanon that was south of Litani. That's part of the agreement the agreement of the UNSC, the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1701. Um, uh, the IDF, they even mentioned this uh, in, in sort of obliquely about how Hezbollah is operating south of the Litani. Um, in when we in that strike we talked about earlier that you met you had said was on the on the air on the airfield. Do you think this is um this, is this actually feasible uh, for the Israelis? Is the, are the Israelis, if they want Hezbollah removed, they're going to have to go in and do it by force? Um, what what would compel Hezbollah to leave? Are we saying is it feasible militarily or is it feasible diplomatically? I can answer both. I yes, can answer exactly. Both. The whole range. I realize I threw three questions in there at once, but yeah, what are the possibilities here? Let's let's break it down. So, look, you went you in Security Council Resolution seventeen oh one was passed uh, in the wake of the Second Lebanon War. The immediate background for this, right, was Hezbollah's launching of an attack into Israel, uh, kidnapping two soldiers, killing others, launching, you know, massive, massive attack into Israel, Katusha rockets, mortars. This led to the Second Lebanon War. This was the threat that 1701 was meant to, you know, to, to, to deal with, right? So you have two basic, two levels of requirements. Um, as, as it relates to Hezbollah and Lebanon. And I, I would argue that the bulk of 1701's requirements, obligations fall on Lebanon. So you have a de minimis requirement, which is to distance Hezbollah. And it's not named explicitly, but again, this is where the background comes into play. Because uh, the Lebanese like to play this kind of this legal sleight of hand where it's like, Hezbollah is not an armed group, it's resistance. But really, again, once you look at the background, uh, it's very clear that Hezbollah's action was the motivation for 1701. So, Putting that, putting the, kind of giving that context, the de minimis requirement is to distance Hezbollah north of the Litani. This is Lebanon's obligation in conjunction with UNIFIL. The maximum uh, obligation is to disarm Hezbollah and all armed groups and to stop the importation of weapons uh, into Lebanon that are not authorized by the Lebanese government, right? So basically implicitly saying, hey, Iran and Syria, stop sending weapons to Hezbollah. Now, Lebanon has an obligation to police its eastern border, where m- probably most of this is coming, uh, Beirut International Airport. It's been, you know, I fought in the Second Lebanon War. I was a kid when that happened. It's almost been like half of my half of my lifetime. And it's been almost 18 years. Not a single one of those requirements has been met, right? In terms of even Lebanon's deployment of forces uh, to South Lebanon, Lebanon had committed to deploying 15,000 forces, committed itself unilaterally committed to deploying 15,000 Lebanese soldiers to work to cooperate with UNIFIL in South Lebanon. That hasn't been met, according to their foreign minister, uh, Abdullah Habib, just on LBCI a couple of days ago, right? 18 years on, even the the most minimal action from Lebanon has not been accomplished. There's been pressure um, from the Israelis. Obviously, there are daily overflights, there are daily incursions, uh, periodic activities in Lebanon. Strictly speaking, these are violations of 1701, violations of 1701, Lebanon sovereignty. You can justify them as countermeasures, given that Lebanon has not lived up to any of its obligations and the situation remains, right? There is a, a strong case to make there. Um, so we have that 18 years, right? Uh, around the same time, a year before the United States, uh, after the assassination of Hariri, Syrian withdrawal, we start tra- training the LAF. Part of I mean, State Department saying this, right? Part of the, uh, the the thought process behind training the LAF is that we, we created as a counterweight to Hezbollah. Again, going on 19 years, we've seen no results. 
Um, let's take it even more closely, right? We want to, don't want to go back into what's now ancient history. Um, since October 8th, we've had these attacks on unilaterally started. This is by Hezbollah's admissions. They started unilaterally attacking northern Israel. Suddenly, the international community reawoke uh, to the, the, the fact that this is a problem. We've had, what, 111 days now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of negotiations. There were attacks this morning, right, from South Lebanon to Israel. Whatever movement, right, the Economist had a, had a, had a report that Hezbollah had moved maybe a couple of miles, or sorry, a couple of kilometers north of the border. Even they admitted that was tactical. Hezbollah has denied you know, any movement of its forces permanently. Now, even if you can accomplish a tactical withdrawal, right? let's say for now, uh, the international community somehow manages to get Hezbollah to move north of Litani. And Israel's like, okay, we're not going to go to war. How do you guarantee that that's going to stop or that's going to remain the case permanently? Given that the actors that are meant to guarantee it, Unifil and LAF, have failed to do so uh, over the course of 18 years, right? This isn't two months. Um, and this, this goes back to Lebanon's, what we would call in, in, in legal parlance, uh, unwillingness or inability to fulfill its obligations under 1701. Um, and this isn't, again, David Daoud stating this. This is Lebanese foreign minister, Abdullah Bouhabib, just last week in LBCI saying, us doing this would be civil war. And if, the, if our choices are civil war, war versus regional war, we will pick regional war every time because you can stop a regional war. Civil war has no end. So in the Lebanese calculus, the price of disarming or constraining Hezbollah will always outweigh the price of leaving Hezbollah to do its business. So that long-winded answer is basically to say, like, the diplomatic approach, even if it works, can only work temporarily because there are no guarantees, right? Unless some other force wants to go in uh, and occupy South Lebanon and do it with authorization to use force against Hezbollah movements into South Lebanon. I also don't see how that's feasible, but even again, in a theoretical, unless you have that, even if you ask, even if Hezbollah for some reason agrees to go north of Litani for now, you cannot guarantee that they will not return all their infrastructures in the South, right? They're not going to, they're not going to abandon everything they built since 1982, but definitely since 2006. Uh, Permanently, when, as we talked about earlier, their objective is ultimately to pray in Jerusalem. Again, one salami slice at a time, that is their objective. Not just them, but the collective resistance actors. So that leaves you with one option, really. And it's not a savory option. It's the option of like, okay, if Lebanon is unwilling or unable, and you know, when you when you when you when you decide to act in self-defense under Article 51, there's the requirements of an armed attack having occurred. I think 111 days. Yeah, I, I think there's enough justification there. There's, there's definitely. I mean, we can we can go into that, but like, definitely there's enough justifications. But then you have necessity and proportionality, right? Necessity is like, are there? Have you exhausted all peaceful means possible? Reasonable peaceful means possible. Recourse to Lebanon, Unifil, the international community. We just went through those. The Israelis are being more patient than they have to be right now. So what does that leave as, as the necessary? Is, is war then necessary? Is some kind of military action beyond the countermeasures that they're doing? Right, The Israelis are striking in Lebanon. They're hitting artillery strikes. This isn't stopping the problem. It's not pushing Hezbollah north. You know, It's not pushing Hezbollah out. It's not stopping the attack. So that also goes into the necessity. And it go, then that kind of segues into proportionality. What's proportional, right? If the actions that you're taking, these counter, you know, these, these counter battery fires, right? These countermeasures short of war are not stopping Hezbollah. Do you have justification? It increases the justification, I would argue, to create at least some kind of buffer zone to unilaterally move in since Lebanon doesn't want to do it. The international community can't do it. UNIFIL can't do it. The countermeasures can't do it. Maybe the only thing that can do it is creating recreating the, the the South Lebanon security zone in a much more buttressed manner than it, than it existed, you know, in, in from, from, from 1985 to 2000. Can the, do the Israelis have the capability? I think they do. I think there's been a narrative that's been circulating around. And look, I, I'm personally no fan of Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, but that does not mean that everything he touches is evil. Um, and I think it's important to say that because the narrative that is now growing, uh, you see this kind of 
anonymous U.S. officials saying this to Washington Post, right? That Bibi is trying to prolong the war, perhaps open a second front to uh, prolong his political career. Not everything, not not everything the man is doing. Uh, again, there's a lot of criticism to be had, but not everything he's doing is going to be for that. So, I think there's there's this artificial um, narrative that's being created that Israel isn't doing it for the right reasons or won't be doing it for the right reasons, and it doesn't have the capability to do it. And I think that, in terms of you know manpower, is not a small army, right? Gaza, the Gaza. Gaza part of the war, and I just can't call it the Gaza war because it's part of this broader war that's already going. It's wound down considerably. There have been brigades demobilized, right? That frees up more resources and more troops to operate along the northern border. Uh, the issue then becomes resupply by the United States of critical weapons, be it Iron Dome or what have you. That's a separate question that you know I can't answer. I'm not in the mind of policymakers, uh, but. In terms of Israel's inherent capability, I think it does have the capability to, if, where in the past, you know, Israel failed against Hezbollah, it was, a, it was not a lack of military prowess. It was a lack of understanding on, because Israel is a democracy, because you do have civilian control of the military, because you do have the leaders of the military, meaning the prime minister, the defense minister, the cabinet, ultimately responsive, you know, to, to the electorate because they want to maintain their support base. Where, where the failure happened was that the Israeli public in 1985 to 2000, for example, did not understand that eliminating Hezbollah was worth the price that would have had to be paid to eliminate Hezbollah. They're like, ah, oh, these ragtag militia, who cares? Right? We're going to lose, you know, we're going to lose 100, 200, 500 people to get rid of them. That's not worth it. Who are they anyway? 2006, it was almost the flip side. The military, sorry, the political echelon did not have the will to do what was necessary vis-a-vis uh, -vis Hezbollah to go in all the way. Right? The second Lebanon war essentially amounted to a bunch of border skirmishes in terms of ground troops uh, with airstrikes deeper into Lebanon, some commando operations in the you know, in Baalbek. But ultimately, that's not enough to win. Right now, you have an alignment, I think, for the first time when it comes to Hezbollah between public sentiment, public understanding of the magnitude and gravity of the threat, Right, that this is going to be October 7th hanging over your head like Damocles' sword from the north if Hezbollah is allowed to, to, to remain on the border, coupled with the political will to do this. So you have this alignment that could allow the Israelis to get over the internal hiccups that prevented them from doing so uh, from 85 to 2000 or in 2006. Yeah. And, you know, look, I know very little of Israeli politics. Um, the Netanyahu issue, I've, he's an Israeli politician, right? But this idea that whatever is being planned right now is all him it's a unity government yeah there's it's a so whatever is happening is happening under the agreement of people that he doesn't particularly yeah. you know we won't caucus yeah. with yeah. so i the, you know it, it's there's there's a love of the boogeyman you know sure. the trump the the Netanyahu, yeah, exactly. the putins the and again i'm not saying any of them don't have their problems particularly putin but um yeah, you know, I, I that idea is just crazy. It's uh, not every decision they're going to make is going to be what we call the fruit of the poisonous tree, right? Yeah, like they're, right. They're, they are going to make some correct decisions. Uh, and I think when it comes to Hezbollah, it's not just Bibi saying this. We're looking at the threat, right? The threat is there. Uh, and if Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, is actually looking at the threat realistically, well, good for him. Uh, Notwithstanding everything else you can criticize about, you know, his domestic policies, his, you know, his attempts to, to remain in power, what have you. But the assessment of the threat of Hezbollah is there, notwithstanding any political motivation that Prime Minister Netanyahu may or may not have. Um, and the imputation of that to him at this moment can only mean or it only seems to me an attempt to dissuade Israel from doing what is necessary. Yeah, I, I concur. And David, I, last question. Um, isn't it ironic that here we are 24 years later now, Israel withdraws from southern Lebanon, Israel withdraws from Gaza, and then 24 years later, well, obviously Gaza is 2005, yeah. six, I forget. 2005, uh, yeah. Yeah. 18 and, years. 18 years. Yeah. And Israel's back in Gaza, and Israel's considering 
going back and reoccupying Southern Lebanon. I mean, it just shows the failure of the policies um, within Israel, by the United States, the international community, the United Nations, and, and also shows how Iran and, and how Hezbollah and how Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, how they've manipulated this situation to, you know, it just it just shocks me that we're we're sort of back to square one. How that experiment of, hey, maybe giving giving them what they want will get them to stop. It's exactly what you talked about earlier. But it's not what they want. They don't want Gaza, right? Right. They right. don't want just Gaza. If that were the problem, then then I, it I, would have been I, over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I don't know. I would only call it not ironic because this was obvious from the outset to anyone yes. who was paying yes. attention, right? That, I have no better word yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's sad, uh, but look. The, the, I mean, I think the 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 uh, mind-boggling part is that once this policy has been proven to have failed, the territorial, you know, the the the, the peace for land for peace formula, vis a vis actors like Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, PFLP, right, that are telling you we want. The whole thing, right? Nasrallah doesn't need the college students here to chant river to the sea. He chants river to the sea. And he tells you exactly what he means by river to the sea without any of this mealy mouth obfuscation that is meant to make what is a genocidal intent more palatable to the American public. He tells you this means the elimination of Israel. Take them at yeah. face value. and that, But at the same time, now we're like, oh, two-state solution. And one thing that should be pointed out is given the location, geography, strategic importance of the West Bank. Let's say there had been a, a completed withdrawal from the West Bank at some point. I don't know, maybe under Ehud Olmert, because he was intending to do that at a certain point. The, the realignment, I think he was calling it. Had this attack been launched from the West Bank, just in the in terms of like how far uh, these terrorists were able to penetrate into Israel, they would have been able to reach Jerusalem at the very least. They would have been able to reach the outskirts of Tel Aviv, if not Tel Aviv itself. You would have had not 1,200 people. You would have had tens of thousands of Israelis killed. And that's the calculus. And that's what no one wants to sit there and say, oh, this is what the Israelis are dealing with. This is what's beyond you know, all those nasty checkpoints and that mean wall and those mean soldiers. Yeah, war is ugly. You know, A military occupation is not pleasant. I don't think anyone wants to get up in the morning and do that to another people. But it's not... It's not gratuitous. And this is something that is lost here in this war over minds and hearts, where you see kind of the snippet, the nasty image of the Israeli soldier acting improperly, beating up uh, an innocent Palestinian. That's a grievance, but it's not the issue. It's not the underlying issue. And the underlying issue is you have a side that says, we don't accept this as a border. If you give us this, we're going to still come for you. And once you give them that, but you're putting them within range yeah. of yeah. your biggest cities. So that, I think, is the irony, right? That, I think, is that after even October 7th, we're still beholden to this idea that land, ceding land will bring peace. This is what's driven me crazy about the, particularly Secretary of State Blinken, you know, trying to foist this upon the Israelis as they just suffered a horrific attack. As if this is an answer, and you just look at it and say, we've tried this for 24 years now, and it is proven to have been failed. And not only proven to have failed, but it's failed spectacularly and at a cost that we as a nation cannot bear. Um, the lecturing, which I, I have heard is incessant behind the scenes. Well, it's incessant. Um, it's incessant in front of the scene. It's certain, certainly in the press, uh, but I heard it's even worse. Um, boy, if I was the Israelis, I I just would, you know. Unfortunately, they can't afford to ask the U.S. Secretary of State to leave. I'd send my lowest ranking, you know, Deputy Secretary of whatever, to to hey, go ahead and just yeah. uh, listen to him, nod your yeah. head, take yeah. notes, and say thank you, sir, yeah. and walk yeah, out. Yeah. I mean. It's it's really offensive at this point in time. Look, I get that they're trying to find a solution, but this is not the solution that the Israelis need. It's it's not a solution. That, it's a failed solution. It's proven failed. And sometimes I think we in the United States need to accept that sometimes solutions aren't available. Yeah. 
yeah. least for now, at least for now, maybe, you know, we can't predict how situations or conditions will change in 20, 25 years. But if you keep trying to throw something at the wall and see if it sticks, you could actually do more, more damage than you can good. And we need to accept, and that is a difficult pill to swallow it because that, that has a lot of nasty implications for human beings. Uh, but I think it's one we need to swallow that for the time being, there really isn't the solution. And this isn't, you know, people argue, you know, Egypt and Israel did it, except Egypt accepted that this is the international order. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Israel walked that, back is, from yeah, the exactly. Sinai. I mean, exactly. they, that was. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's the difference. That's, that's the fundamental difference that you do, you are not dealing with interlocutors or a side or a party now that is telling you, we accept this to be the end of it. Right. You, you, I mean, the very concept of occupation has been redefined to argue that even after Israel withdraws from Gaza, it remains occupied. Now, what happens when you do that with with the West Bank? Right. What happened? Like, where do you end this this game? And it is becoming increasingly a game. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, in Sadat, you know, was killed for it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For, for, for yeah. making peace with Israel. That yeah. just goes to show. David, thank you so much. Excellent points today. Really uh, glad we got you on, Benham. We missed you, but you know what? David did a great job filling your shoes. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.